It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 12th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, Sinn Féin is to ask the doll today to say it has no confidence in the government because, as their motion puts it, the government is out of ideas, out of touch and out of time. Adam Higgins is a political correspondent with the Irish Sun and joins us this morning. Good morning to you, Adam, and thanks morning, for your time. Michael. As always. Uh, so Sinn Féin to ask TDs to vote on removing the government from office, but I think something completely different is expected to happen. The majority will actually end up voting in favour of a, a government motion and say that they have confidence in the government. Is Sinn Féin throwing what you might call a political boomerang destined to come back and hit it in the face? Yes, so you're right. The the coalition will table a counter motion to Sinn Féin's no confidence uh, bid tonight, and it does look like the government has the the majority here. So. This all comes from last week, uh, Donegal TD, Joe McHugh, he defected from Fine Gael over an issue he has with the Michael Redress scheme. So he said he wouldn't give the government his vote on this, and it dropped the government's majority down to 79. So they no longer have that guaranteed voting majority in the Dáil. Now... Sinn Féin then saw this as an opportunity to try and force a general election and take down the government. It was kind of, everyone knew it wasn't going to pass because this government does have the backing of several independents that kind of vote with them on most issues. But not only that, since this uh, motion was tabled by Sinn Féin, other TDs that used to be in the government fold have come out to say that they will be supporting the coalition on this vote. So the likes of uh, Joe McHugh and Mark McSherry, who used to be with Fianna Fáil but is now an independent, has said they will back the government. So it does look like the government will survive this time. All right. Now, see Mary Lou MacDonald writing in The Sun today uh, as to why uh, they should change their minds and vote in favour of the Sinn Féin motion. And she says in The Sun that they must make way for a government that will do the things that are necessary to make people's lives better. A government that will roll up its sleeves and get to work to ensure you have a chance at a good and decent life. This is not a lot to ask for. Uh, she's setting out her, her stall uh, in uh, the sun today, uh, as of course Sinn Féin does in its motion. I think it's probably 
probably clear at this stage the approach that Sinn Féin is going to take in terms of criticising the government, particularly in the areas of housing and health care. Yes, 100%. And that's two uh, issues that this government has been uh, hit with over the past uh, couple of years. Now, the government have kind of something of a surprise uh, Taoiseach's reaction to this because from the very get-go, the day after um, uh, Mary Lou MacDonald announced that she was going to table this motion, the Taoiseach said he welcomed it. He was almost saying, bring it on. He said he's looking forward to the opportunity to go into the doll and set out this government's successes over the past few years, pointing to Ireland's uh, relatively good um, way we've came out, come out of the COVID-19 crisis and how this government is tackling climate action and things like that but you know, the big one and the big one that I think has brought a lot of voters to Sinn Féin is housing and really this government hasn't done enough to change the tide on that yet and I think that's the big issue that will, will come up tonight and I think those sparks will fly between the two sides of the doll mm. there. And I, I suppose at this time of the year coming into the recess and the summer holidays for TDs you'd expect over the next couple of months Sinn Féin representatives and other TDs uh, from the opposition benches to be on programmes like this and uh, on the radio saying well the doll shouldn't have gone on holidays uh, because the country's in a mess and nobody has confidence in the government look at their record on housing and healthcare and all that sort of thing there'll be a lot of whinging if you like over the summer Uh, but will that actually happen this year I I wonder uh, will Sinn Féin be able to make that criticism of the government uh, because uh, it'll be obvious that the doll the elected TDs in the Dáil have voted confidence in the government. Mm, yes, and you're right. And this, this government, as of what we will see this evening, does have a majority, does have the backing. And, and the majority, what that really means when you bubble it all down is it has the backing of the people, the people of the state who voted for these TDs to come in. So that's what the government will say all the way through the summer. And you're right to point out that there will be TDs over several issue, different issues. And there is every year calling for the doll to return over such issues, say maybe housing, things like that. But um, I think if anything brings this doll back sooner, it will be. Um, the cost of living crisis because there is real pressure coming on TDs from what I'm told is it's the number one issue that's coming up with their constituents is this cost of living crisis we know the budget has already been brought back to September as opposed to that second week in October so it's two weeks early and I think the only thing that would really bring this this uh, doll back early this summer will be uh, either well possibly a worsening situation in the Ukraine or this cost of living crisis It could have been turf uh, but turf has been sorted out <laughs> and that might have been the biggest issue of all it seems as though uh, backbench government backbench TDs are satisfied with uh, the government's position in relation to the cost of living in that uh, they've increased uh, the back to school allowance brought that forward and are looking at targeted measures in a budget that's being brought forward forward two weeks as well to September. Yes, exactly. And on that turf, and it does seem like that will be finally put to bed today. Now, from what I was told, speaking to several ministers and a couple of backbenchers a few weeks ago, that there was positive meetings with Eamon Ryan. He's agreed to tinker with the, his legislation a bit and change it so that all of the parties can vote with it. So it does look like that one's going to be put to bed. The changes that are going to be in it is that it won't be illegal for you to sell turf to, say, your neighbours and, and to people on their street, that sort of thing. But the the 
piece that he still wants to get through is that it'd be banned from shops so that commercial sale would be gone mm. and he won't be able to advertise it so it's kind of slowly stepping down and phasing out that, that turf use Yeah and the odd thing of course is uh, that the real target is smoky coal uh, and online advertising of smoky coal from the north which is sold here uh, and quite commonly so and openly so and that will prohibit that uh, but they have to include turf because uh, otherwise it would be seen as discriminating if you like against one fossil fuel over the other uh, but uh, all advertising no commercial sale of turf smoky coal or wet wood uh, as I think they put it and that will uh, give the government the space uh, that it is expected today to realise the numbers uh, to pass a motion of confidence in the doll, but uh, it will be an opportunity uh, for the opposition to make some points against the government before uh, they go off on holidays. What will you be watching for today? Uh, Because I think we know that Sinn Féin will raise uh, housing, cost of living, healthcare, an emergency budget, the likes of MICA and Pyrite and so on. Are there other issues that will come up uh, that the government will come under fire for? I think what I will be watching most keenly this evening is who backs the government and who doesn't because we know that this government will survive with the support of their former TDs, Mark McSherry and Joe McHugh. But a couple of independents have also promised their support in Cottle Berry and Kildare and Michael Lowry. But there's another uh, few independent TDs who usually back the government mm. and they haven't really declared which way they're going to go. The likes so of Peter Fitzpatrick. Like the, yes. our, our local TD here, Peter Fitzpatrick. I think we'll all be <laughs> amazed if Peter Fitzpatrick votes against the government. But we could be wrong. Have you any thoughts on Peter Fitzpatrick's position? Peter Fitzpatrick hasn't really made his position known on this vote and he said he would take it to the last minute to decide so I think that's one of the TDs that I think will be a key indicator of how the public are feeling towards this coalition there's also two other TDs that I know all eyes will be on in the doll tonight and that's the two suspended green TDs that's a Horrigan and Pastor Costello who lost their whip a couple of months ago when they voted against the government on a different issue the, the National Maternity Hospital that they have still not said which way they're going to vote okay. we've seen the other defected TDs say that they will be back in the government it'll be very interesting to see if they back the, the government tonight and if they don't what will happen to their Green Party membership Okay, uh, maybe get uh, ready on uh, the tweet machine there uh, Adam because I have some breaking news for you uh, which is just coming to me because uh, you know that Peter Fitzpatrick wears many hats uh, and apparently Uh, He told a meeting of the Louth County Board last night that he will be supporting the government today uh, and he will vote confidence in the government. Well, that clearly shows now that the support is with the government, that there will be no chance that this motion will win tonight. And really, I think what you're going to see in the Dáil this evening is is a high-level slagging match between the opposition and the government parties. All right. What about the two Green TDs or the two TDs that lost uh, the whip with uh, the Green Party? Yes, so they still haven't indicated which way they're going to go on this. And I think that's a fascinating one there because they were punished and lost the whip. And then they said over the past couple of weeks, Nessa Horrigan has said that she hasn't had a call from the whip's office in the Green Party. So she doesn't know which way she's going to vote, which seems fascinating that she wouldn't back her own government or, or wouldn't uh, indicate clearly that this is what she plans to do is to back her own government. Like, I mean, you'd have to question whether these TDs really want to be in the part of this coalition at all, because... If they're not going to back the, the government on an issue as clear cut as this, why be in this uh, the Green Party? Why be in that coalition at all? Mm, yeah, well, maybe they're just fretting a little bit and looking for a bit of attention. 
Possibly, possibly, and it is coming up to budget negotiations yeah. very soon, so yeah. I think you'll see plenty of that over the summer. Yeah. And maybe they're looking for some forgiveness uh, because, uh, you know, you do have some uh, power when it comes uh, to governments looking for your support. What about the independents who are supporting the government? Uh, will there be any negotiations going on uh, in return for that support? Yes, that is guaranteed. And we know the Taoiseach was phone calling a couple of those independent TDs looking for their support, canvassing them over the weekend. And he's clearly got that when he's telling now that Peter Peter Fitzpatrick is there, Michael Lowry, Cahill Berry. And no doubt there will be some things that that will be promised over those phone calls, possibly. You know, I know Cahill Berry has a a particular interest in the Defence Forces. We see that Defence Force uh, memo coming to Cabinet today, calling for massive investment in the Defence Forces over the next eight years or six mm. years. So I think there will be little issues that will come okay. in favour of those independents on yeah. the back of this. Could, could be an emergency department opened in the Louth County Hospital. <laughs> you wouldn't know what Peter Fitzpatrick has managed uh, to negotiate with the Taoiseach. Time will tell, I take it. Yes, it'll be interesting to see now, especially coming up to the budget, when you start looking into the minutia of where the, the money is going in the budget, you'll be able to pinpoint, I think, where uh, the, the, the support has come from. All right, well, we hope to ask Peter Fitzpatrick uh, exactly that question uh, tomorrow in terms of uh, if uh, he is going to get anything in return for the support that we're told uh, he, he said he will give to the government at that meeting of uh, the Louth County Board last night. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, Adam. It's going to be an interesting day. I think uh, that debate starts about four o'clock and uh, we'll finish before tea time uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll have much coverage of it throughout the day. And thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's Adam Higgins, political correspondent with The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the President of uh, the High Court uh, is uh, about uh, to retire, and uh, Mary Carlin, the legal affairs correspondent uh, with the Irish Times, is reporting uh, this morning that Miss Justice Mary Irvine has expressed concern about the lack of sufficient specialist services in the state for those suffering from eating disorders. She was speaking at an event before her retirement saying that she's seen an ever-increasing number of eating disorder cases, many involving high-achieving young people in the wardship list. And she said it is deeply troubling that over the years there have not been enough specialist beds provided for those affected. Let's speak to Barry Murphy who's Research and Policy Officer with BodyWise. That's Body W-H-Y-S, BodyWise uh, which is a national organisation uh, that helps people with eating disorders. Good morning to you Barry and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I, I take it uh, you uh, would have no great surprise in, in hearing uh, what uh, Justice Mary Irvine had to say. No, and certainly it's not the, the first time this has come up. In fact, uh, Justice Peter Kelly, who was uh, previously President of the High Court, he also highlighted these difficulties around, as you said, the, the lack of beds and the lack of specialised services for eating disorders. All right. Uh, and uh, we're talking about anorexia and bulimia, these kind of conditions uh, that are, are very complicated uh, conditions, which is why specialist beds are, are needed. Uh, maybe you tell us a, a little bit more about how people are treated if one of those beds becomes available to them. Yeah, so beds, I suppose, in a sense, are the, can be the, the sharp end of eating disorder treatment. And if, if a person needs a bed, they, they may be medically compromised or, or medically unstable. So they may be 
in a very physically deteriorated state or at a very low weight and potentially also not in a position to make decisions in their own best interest. So that's where potentially an inpatient admission may be required. And, you know, it's it's a it's a very slow road to recovery even within that. And people tend to get more well at home and in the community than they, they do more so in, in hospital. And obviously, if we had more beds, generally for, for adults in particular, it would give, I think, the treatment team greater flexibility mm. and it would take away so I think some of the anxiety that people have but also families as well Now are you talking about very extreme cases where, where people are refusing to eat? I suppose it's a mixture of just eat. it can be the person has had it for quite a long time and has, has had maybe repeat or multiple hospital admissions or it may be just it's it's something that's been part of their life for a briefer period of time, but they may still be very, very unwell and require mm. going down that inpatient road. Okay, but if somebody is refusing food, uh, I'm sure we could all uh, understand quite easily uh, how in a specialist bed they can be fed, uh, but that doesn't change what's going on in their mind uh, to come to that decision themselves, that they don't want to eat. Uh, and I take it that's part of the treatment. Yeah, it's it's very hard. I think it's you're 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 trying to reach someone, I suppose, in in a sense, to to get the rational part of their mind on board with the treatment because the illness part is where we see that that difficulty around kind of the, the not wanting to eat. And obviously, we know that there are there are changes in the brain that happen as well. For example, with anorexia. The, the brain can shrink and obviously that has quite a number of ramifications for a person's cognitive thought processes and just their physical health and their quality of life. Okay, and why does somebody get an eating disorder? It's a very complicated thing in itself because we all have to eat to live, obviously. But how does it go from somebody watching their weight or, or going on a, a diet uh, to becoming a, a real problem that is life-threatening in itself? Yeah, it's a, it can be a, a real range of factors and accumulation, really, of kind of a person's life circumstances. There can be a genetics component and it can be just, say, big transition points in life first, uh, breakup, changing school, puberty, those kind of big developmental milestones and moving away to college. And then with those kind of the, the risk factors as well, say a, a tendency towards being quite perfectionistic or a tendency towards anxiety. And oh, a while ago, a couple of months ago, the Ombudsman for Children, he flagged the pressure from the Leaving Cert as, a, as an example, as a potential contributing factor. So it can be all of those kind of things and if the person doesn't have the the resilience, but their their height their stress levels are very heightened, that can be somewhere where they start to go down the road mm. of maybe changing how they relate to food, and then, and then things can sometimes get very out of control. Right, uh, and we've been hearing, uh, I suppose, for 
uh, a number of years uh, how life is difficult for young people and has become more difficult for young people and all of the problems associated with that, uh, whether uh, that's to do with online uh, uh, abuse or bullying or any of these other things um, uh, that seem to be impacting on the mental health of young people uh, and is all of that feeding into an increase in the number of eating disorders? Yeah, it's a big question with social media really and I suppose it's, it's not a, a primary risk factor as such and it's, it's important to say that you know, it, it is a tool for expression and the positive side of it as well. It's for eating disorders. You see people you know, documenting, documenting their experience or their recovery. Where people tend to get into difficulties more so, in the, I think, in the body image realm and that mm. kind of the visual-based comparisons that uh, are presented on social media because that's kind of, in a sense, the, the hook factor of the various apps. And obviously, we we know the devices we carry in our pockets are not they're not designed to be checked once a day. They they really call to our attention, and many people will scroll through stuff and they don't take things on board. But there may be others who see kind of things, body ideals, and then they make the comparison mm. comparison with themselves, and then it starts that internal chatter. Mm. Of I should be able to inter- attain this. I should be able to look like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, young people. I take it it's not just young people. And when I, I think uh, people looking at other people, thinking I should be able to look like that, uh, I, I've thought that that probably uh, is something that uh, you'd find more so with uh, girls and women. Uh, are eating disorders more common uh, with uh, women? Overall, yes, but uh, we've been seeing kind of increases amongst men now ongoing for the past number of years. And just there in June, we started our men's only online support group. So men could have their own dedicated space if they wanted to come forward for seeking help for an eating disorder. I think men can often experience really an an extra piece of stigma when having an eating disorder because it, it sounds so contrary to the stereotype I think many, many people have which is it just it's just young teenage women which is not the case mm, Okay uh, so it's male and female young and old uh, boys and girls men and women uh, of all ages uh, in other words uh, who can have an eating disorder is it something that you can be born with? I suppose I'd come back to the genetics piece in a sense and you know, there, there's an expression that sometimes comes up. So it's this idea of nature loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. In other words, the genetic risk plus certain factors in, in the environment, which mm. could be, there's a lot of can go on around weight-based bullying or teasing, and then also sometimes trauma or adverse childhood experiences, uh, like maybe rape or sexual abuse. And in some of those situations you hear of a person saying, well, I want to make my body smaller as, as part of kind of, I think, trying to escape that trauma in a sense. And sometimes people kind of develop an eating disorder as a, as a consequence of that. But even with the biological risk, not everyone who has that risk will automatically go on to develop an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course uh, it can have a, a detrimental uh, effect on people uh, because if you're not eating or not eating as you should uh, and 
Um, I suppose that speaks for itself uh, but the, the, the mental health issue uh, can lead to other problems and that can have a, an impact uh, on lifespan as well uh, and so that's why these specialist beds are, are, are so uh, important uh, and uh, the services uh, that's provided to people uh, are, are so complicated and that's why uh, we hear the outgoing president of the High Court uh, criticising and expressing concern about uh, the situation. Uh, BodyWise uh, does offer help to people and you've a, a national helpline or people can contact you online for that matter, Barry. Yeah, absolutely. So people can contact 012107906 or else alex at bodywise.ie. Okay. All right, that's 2107908 or Alex at Bodywise. That's W-H-Y-S dot I-E. Barry, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme as always. That's Barry Murphy, Research and Policy Officer with Bodywise. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the government is set to uh, approve spending on uh, the Defence Forces. Simon Coveney, the Minister for Defence, is uh, to ask government to increase spending from 1.1 billion euro a year to one and a half billion by 2028. That's not all that uh, the Minister is working on at the moment and Irish Defence Forces are becoming involved in more European projects. Earlier this week, or last week it was in fact, uh, Simon Coveney brought a a motion to the Dáil which asked for approval for Defence Forces participation in four permanent structured cooperation projects or PESCO projects. But what is PESCO? It is not, as some would suggest, a Trojan horse for a European army and nor does it uh, uh, compromise our policy of military neutrality. It does not involve a commitment uh, to the development of any form of common military force. Uh, Having pointed out these facts, today's debate should focus, therefore, on the motion that is before the House. What the government is proposing uh, is a very modest level of participation in PESCO, increasing the number of projects in which we are participants from one to five of the 60 projects that are currently underway. One to five of the 60 projects and uh, the four new projects would deal with cyber threats, disaster relief, special operation forces, medical training and uh, indeed dealing with mines uh, and making areas secure that have had mines laid in them. Uh, We should focus today on the specific projects in which it is proposed to participate, whether that is in relation to cyber threats military disaster relief capability, special operations forces medical training or semi-autonomous technologies and capabilities for maritime mine countermeasures. All, I think, are highly relevant at the moment given some of the challenges that we face on our continent and beyond. Now, let's speak to Joe Murray, who's a coordinator with the AFRI Action from Ireland Group. Good morning to you, Joe. Good morning, Michael. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. You have concerns uh, about uh, the uh, the additional projects that the Irish Defence Forces are going to participate uh, as part of PESCO. Yeah, we have, the, we have concerns, uh, Michael. Um, you know, this is an ongoing issue. Um, obviously, the war in Ukraine has brought all these things to the fore. And all of us are deeply concerned, and our solidarity is with the people of Ukraine. Um, but what we, I think, what we also see in the whole situation there is the horror of war when it is visited on a people. And uh, Ireland 
throughout its history has had a, a different policy, a policy of neutrality, which is uh, cherished and treasured by people, by the vast majority of people. And this has been reflected in numerous um, uh, polls that have been taken throughout, mm. the, throughout the years. 64%, so, I think, in the latest one. 64%, in the exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's, that has, that's our difficulty, is that what the government has done is to gradually erode and hollow out that policy. And this is part of that process. You know, and our belief is that there there are enough countries in the world making weapons and making war, and we see the horror of war, not just in Ukraine, but in 15 other countries where war is uh, happening at the moment. Okay, this is a, a military we, alliance. Do you believe it is a, a Trojan horse for a European army? Absolutely, it is. There's no doubt about it. We have we can we campaigned in many of the referendums, the Nice mm. referendum, the Lisbon referendum. Not to say that we should reject it, but to say that there is a military dimension to these uh, treaties that is not being um, highlighted by the government. And that's why we voted twice, uh, the second time on the Lisbon referendum. Exactly, Uh, exactly. When the people expressed their will, they were said, we were told, no, you got it wrong, let's vote again till we get the results. Well, the clause was put in to protect Irish neutrality, uh, and as a result... Well, it wasn't really a clause, it was... it wasn't. It was not an illegal. It was yeah. an attachment. Okay, but, but it was an assurance. It was an assurance that was given to the Irish people, and that is why now uh, the Taoiseach and the Tanisha, uh, when they're asked about NATO membership, say uh, that well, we can't join a European army uh, because there's a constitutional clause to that because it was written into the Irish Constitution. Uh, but uh, the that the 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 issue of joining NATO uh, is a policy issue for the administration of the day, the government of the day. Uh, the, like, the, the people are the ultimate arbiters, Mike. This is uh, a decision for the Irish people. And, and this is one of the worrying things in what Simon Coveney um, has said in recent days, is that the government is responding to projects that the defence forces have chosen to take part in. Now, surely the defence forces are answerable to the government, not the government is answerable to the defence forces. And that's a very worrying development. Mm. But he, he, he says the reason that the Defence Forces are choosing these issues is uh, that it, it'll give them better training and uh, they uh, be able to provide better defence. Cyber threats, for example, is something that uh, we're seen as being particularly weak at and this will train up the Defence Forces to protect us. It's a, it's a gradual process, um, you know, in the same way as we are told there are no military imp- implications whatsoever in any of the European treaties. Now, I suppose what we're doing is taking the soft elements of PESCO, which is, despite what he says, an embryonic European army. I think anybody would recognize that who looks at it. So what what they're doing is taking the soft options, the acceptable face of PESCO, if you like, so that we gradually are, are in there. And the next stage, no doubt, will be that we will take on more aggressive. And already uh, uh, the government is talking about preparing uh, the Ranger Wing in particular in particular, for war-making capability. Now, surely that is a significant change in our neutrality policy, one that has been time and time again reinforced by, by the Irish people saying we do not want to be involved in aggressive uh, overseas policies. We want to continue what we have done proudly since the beginning, uh, since the founding of the state, which is peacekeeping under the United mm-hmm. Nations peacekeeping on the United Nations, not 
war making alongside NATO. Yeah, well, in, at, a, at a time, uh, Michael, when our planet is under threat, you know, we're, we're told we might have 10 years before we have catastrophic climate change. What we should be doing is spending our resources on uh, protecting the, the environment, on, on, on de-escalation and on disarmament, not allowing the madness of the weapons industry to call the shots and to make the decisions on our behalf. It's crazy. The, the world needs a country that's promoting peace, disarmament, de-escalation and demilitarization, not jumping on the bandwagon of militarism, war and the destruction that that causes. All right. Well, there was a, an interesting mission to Mali uh, as well, uh, which I think really did question Ireland's neutrality uh, because what the Irish Defence Forces were doing in Mali was training an army that was involved in armed conflict. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll just hear a little bit more from Simon Coveney and what he had to say about that mission. It is the case that in all circumstances in which Defence Forces personnel are deployed overseas, they are also deployed in strict coherence with the law. The conditions under which the Defence Forces may participate in overseas peace support operations are set out in the Defence Acts, where personnel are deployed uh, as part of an international United Nations force. The conditions known as the triple lock must be satisfied. That requires that the operation must be authorised or mandated by the United Nations. It must be approved by the government and where the size of the Defence Forces contribution is more than 12 personnel, it must be approved by way of a resolution of the Dáil. But on that occasion, uh, the Minister argued it didn't need the approval of uh, the Dáil. Yeah, well, again, I think, Michael, what that uh, proves is the point I've been making is that it's all gradual, it's all done by stealth, it's all done by deceit. And, and in that way, you know, and then we are told, well, we've already participated in this, so what's the big deal? Mm. So that's why on this occasion, AFRI is, uh, you know, calling to people to waken up to what's happening. Something really important, something really significant for Ireland, something that makes us different you know, after 30 mm. years at least of a, of, a, of a war, of a conflict on our own island, we've learned that at the end of the day, what has to happen is negotiation, dialogue and, and peace. Mm. And that's what Ireland should be doing. We were okay. uniquely placed between East and West that we could say, look, there's enough people making war. There are enough countries making weapons. Let us do something different. Let us be the voice of reason, of disarmament, of demilitarization and of uh, an island of peace, really. And we could choose to be that if we... And that's what the people want. Something that makes us uniquely different, though, is our relationship uh, with uh, the United States. Would you be concerned, Joe, that uh, Joe Biden wants uh, NATO uh, to expand, to become bigger uh, and stronger, uh, and uh, to be able to say to Vladimir Putin, uh, you thought you would... Uh, attack us. Instead, you've made us stronger and bigger. Uh, and that Mr. Biden would be saying to Michal Martin, we want Ireland on board, we want everybody on board. And don't forget the kind of things that America can do for you in rejecting a uh, UK trade deal and trying to so- sort out this Brexit problem for you and so on. I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And I'm very concerned about the fact that Shannon has been, uh, you know, has facilitated some of the worst wars that we have seen in recent years, and that's a shame. It's a stain on our on our so-called on our neutrality or what remains of it. And yes, I, I am very concerned 
that you know that Joe Biden is making those sounds. And, and like what we must remember in this con- in the current conflict, the ultimate aggressor is Russia, and there's no justification whatsoever for what Russia is doing. And they must be condemned, and they must continuously be persuaded to discontinue this horrific war. But also we must remember that when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a promise made to Gorbachev at that time that that NATO would not expand. And of course, as soon as as the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO expanded at pace. And, And, you know, and the world stood by and watched and we watched NATO grow, and every year AFRI, uh, you know, promote or announces the increasing cost of of military expenditure in every country in the world. The United States is ten times ahead of every other country. We're now spending nineteen hundred billion dollars on weapons in the world. Nineteen hundred billion dollars. Yeah, that's a lot has of that, money. Has that, yeah. has that made yeah. us secure? No, it yeah, hasn't. It's yeah. made us more insecure. And we know that children will go to bed tonight hungry. Joe, I'm over time and I have to leave it there, but thank you for your time. Pleasure to talk to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Thank on you, Mike. This morning. That's uh, Joe Murray, coordinator with AFRI Action from Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Simon Community's lockout report for June makes for incredible reading, uh, despite everything you've heard over the years about the housing crisis. But there were just 37 properties available to HAP recipients across uh, the country in June. That's uh, those uh, who would be receiving the payment under the standard payment or the discretionary limit. Let's uh, speak uh, to Wayne Stanley, who's Head of Policy and Communications with Simon Communities of Ireland. Good morning to you, Wayne, and thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. And Before you talk uh, about the different limits and how it breaks down with the 37 properties that were available, maybe you just... uh, Remind us briefly what HAP is. This is the housing assistance payment, uh, which is given to people who rent property in the private market. And the council will pay the landlord, uh, but then uh, the tenant has to pay some extra to the council. That's basically what we're talking about, isn't it? That's exactly right. I mean, that's a very good explanation of it. In in, in essence, what it is, it's an income uh, supplement for people who uh, have a social housing need. Uh, but uh, there isn't the social housing stock there, so they're supported to hold a place in the private rental market. Uh, ideally, the idea is that as we ramp up the level of public housing, that those people should be drawn back out of it. What has happened is it's become a permanent infrastructure now. There are some 60,000 households on HAP mm. uh, around the country. Uh, what this report really talks about so we come out from the perspective of the Simon communities. Mm. And I suppose when it started uh, a number of years ago, really what we were looking at was what were the, around the country, particularly in areas where, where, where Simon works with people, uh, what would is the potential for HAP to support people to get out of homelessness or indeed to work with people if they, if they didn't know about the entitlement to help prevent them from coming into homelessness when their rent got too high, to help them meet the cost of the renting. What it has now become is a barometer of the crisis in the private rental market. I think, it, like I know Michael, mm-hmm. you and I regularly talk when this report comes out, and really over the last couple of reports, you, you were, I know I was thinking, well, it has to plateau. Mm. It can't be getting worse. And quarter after quarter, it just continues yeah. to get worse. Yeah, it's like dramatically 30, 37 worse. 37 properties yeah. across the whole of the country uh, was just extraordinarily low. And, and in just, the context of 1,300 families in homelessness. 
and just two of them are under the standard limit. Uh, maybe we can uh, uh, explain to people um, about the different limits because there's four categories uh, depending on whether you're a single person or uh, a, a family with children and so on. There's four different categories. Uh, and I suppose uh, the HAP limit comes in, in, into play in terms of um, what qualifies. Uh, so if you're in a certain area and the market rent is so much, uh, they say, well, you're allowed so much, uh, let's say a thousand euro to rent a place or two thousand euro. Uh, um, and um, if it's higher than that, uh, you're not allowed to rent. Is that right, Wayne? No, well, actually what's happening is, so uh, you're absolutely correct. It's based on the local area rent and they were set in 2016. Um, but obviously, uh, rents have continued to increase. I think the index, the rental index, would say that it's increased by rents have increased by 40% since 2016 when these basic rates were set. So that's how far out of, mm. out of uh, for the want of a better phrase, out of whack they, they are. Mm. The, um, so what, what has, I suppose, been built into it as a, as a stopgap is discretion for the local authorities to exceed uh, the caps that were set that in limit. 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. To, uh, to give them discretion to say, okay, well, where a person may be at risk of homelessness or struggle to find a place, we can give them, we can increase that by, uh, and until recently, until uh, Monday, in fact, yesterday, it was 20% outside of the Dublin region mm. and it was 50% within the Dublin region. And as you know, the Family Communities of Ireland have been calling for, the, for that to be equalised and for the 50% rate to be set mm. uh, outside of Dublin as well. The Minister has actually increased it to 35% um, and we, we, we looked at that as well. Okay. Um, but so that increased discretion brings a certain number of properties. Without it, as you say, across the country, mm. there only would have been two properties available within the standard tap rate. It increases to 37, but increases to 37 mm. out of a total of 657 properties, so mm. about 5% of the properties that are available. But the truth is, even if you were to bring the HAP rates up to make all of those 657 properties available, it still wouldn't be enough to meet the need that we have around homelessness the need that we have around the people who are mm. struggling. The private rental market is just so constricted at the moment. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's another mm. symptom of the level of crisis that we're in. Mm. And what we really need to see is some kind of innovative, uh, directed action. And I think the only place we... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Can really see any potential for that in the short term. I mean, in the long term, we need more public housing. We need them mm. building local authority housing. We need innovations like cost rental that's in has uh, for all expanded. But at the moment, the only place that there's any capacity is in vacancy. Yeah, well, uh, and then we move on to dereliction. So that uh, that is something the government is just going to have to look at, and hopefully they will attack it in the next budget. Yeah, well, uh, in the next budget, but in the interim, they must look at the hap limit surely because uh, there's. Yeah. Uh, no point. It really is pointless. I, is it not qualifying for HAP if you can't afford to rent anywhere? This is the modern day rent a, uh, allowance. And uh, you're talking about two houses in all of the country uh, that you would be in line for renting. That doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be able to get either of them, given the amount of people who are looking for housing. 
exactly that, exactly that. So that's why the, the sort of the the, 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 the dysfunction, there, that's why I mentioned the dysfunction in the in the private rental market in that sense. But you're absolutely right. right. I mean, there's two, there's two aspects to that. One is the capacity of people maybe to find a place um, and increasing the basic rates and increasing the discretion of local authorities will help with that. The other thing it will do is the HAP rate is what people are doing with the HAP rate and they're, they're allowed to do this is they're, they're making their contribution which is usually based around what they would be the contribution they would make for their in their local authority area but they're also topping that up in order to bridge the gap between uh, the rent the, the maximum rent that can be paid under the HAP scheme and then topping that up to meet uh, local rents and that mm-hmm. might be 100 euros a month or it could be as much as 500 euros a month and that's coming out of people's either low income or social welfare payment and that just is unsustainable particularly in the context of the cost of living crisis that we're all living through at the moment so you're absolutely right I mean the basic rates as I say haven't changed in 2016 they need to be increased uh, people make the case that you mm-hmm. know there might be an inflationary uh, aspect to that a, a recent ERSI report looked at that and said you know the evidence for that when the when the rates are so low and so far away from market rents is very limited. Okay. And what that will do, yeah, as I say, mm. it'll, it'll help bridge that gap between the what people are paying out um, and and the sort of the, the way their incomes are being depleted by inflation, and will keep some families and individuals uh, out of homelessness. Uh, even as a mechanism. So the two sides to it are impacted if we increase the basic rate. So it's really important that that happen. Okay, we've been talking all all morning about the, all week uh, for that matter, about the no confidence motion in uh, the government or what will be a confidence motion in the government and how housing will become uh, a big part of uh, that debate. Indeed, it'll become part of another Sinn Féin motion, uh, a raise the roof motion that they're putting to the doll, which would also call for a referendum to enshrine the right to housing in uh, the constitution. And that would force, uh, I mean if that was to happen, that would force uh, these limits uh, to change or for there be, to be more housing uh, available. Uh, but I don't think anybody would be holding their breath given uh, the scale of the crisis uh, at the moment. Simon of course works in Dundalk. What's the situation locally? So in Dundalk um, in the lockdown report there was 13 properties to rent in total and three of those would have fell within the discretionary levels. An additional two. So the other thing to say is mm. the outside of Dublin, just something I should have mentioned, uh, as I say, on, on Monday, the new rates came in and there's increased discretion now for local authorities up to 35%. So that would have bought an additional property. So five out of the 13 would have been available in Dundalk. Okay. But, and what about uh, under no, the standard limit? No, that's, no, no. no. That's Nothing. By, just by increasing the yeah. discretion. So that speaks again to the need to increase the um, the basic rates mm. that are there to bring them more in line with the with the current rental market. Mm. Yeah. And do people know that when they're told uh, what their HAP limit is? Um, do they go back to the council and say, uh, I'm not able to, for- to, to, to find anywhere under that limit uh, and ask for uh, more flexibility from the council? Yeah, I think it happens in different ways in different mm. local authorities. Um, uh, so I, I can't speak to, mm. to everyone. What, what I do know is when somebody gets within the last four weeks of their um, of their notice Tenancy, to quit yeah. mm-hmm. and they still haven't found anywhere 
um, at that point, the discretion, uh, the local authority should be using the maximum discretion to ensure that person does not end up in homelessness. Okay. That's really important to that. All right. Well, they obviously would have a, a battle on their hands finding somewhere to live. We'll leave it there for the moment, Wayne. Thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme today. Wayne Stanley is Head of Policy and Communications with the Simon Communities of Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, and thanks, as always, to anybody who has taken the time uh, to get on the phone or WhatsApp or email, as uh, the case may be. Uh, we had a call this morning from Sean, who is in Drogheda, and he says that the TDs in the Dáil earn over €100,000 a year. So why would they go against the government and jeopardise that? Well, uh, <laughs> they may be re-elected after going against the government. They may not be re-elected if they don't go against government, I suppose. Uh, that's uh, one way of answering it, uh, and you can choose which is correct. Uh, somebody else says, uh, this is Geraldine, actually. Geraldine is in Drogheda, and she says, it's no wonder that young girls are very conscious of uh, their body image when you look at uh, these reality shows on television. And they all seem to be addicted to to as that the the young girls are addicted to watching uh, as the girls are always so thin on these shows you rarely see someone with a fuller figure she says uh, thank you Geraldine uh, for your call to the programme uh, this morning as well Paddy Duffy was in touch with us early today I think uh, he may have sent this in to us yesterday for that matter so thanks for coming back to us Paddy he says since 2011 our homegrown Tory party which is Fine Gael, according to Paddy, have successfully made a complete mess of this so-called republic. They badly need just as long or more on... They badly need some time uh, on the back benches, on the opposition benches, so that they can't do any more damage. It'll take years to reverse the damage that they've done if it can ever be damaged, he says. And he also says uh, it, it won't be for many... Uh, years and that won't happen for many of our people. Thank you, Patty, as always, for your text message to the programme today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, uh, the Shannon is uh, to debate uh, the final report of uh, the Joint Committee on Key Issues uh, Affecting uh, the Traveller Community. Uh, let's speak uh, to Independent Senator Eileen Flynn. A very good morning to you, Senator Flynn, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's an important report, and I, I take it this will be an important debate today. Uh, good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me on your show this morning. Yeah, it is a very important uh, report. We launched a report uh, seven months ago, and it was four months ago since I addressed the doll with the uh, with the report. And basically, uh, in the doll, I was looking for action, and the same today. It's looking for action, accountability, and implementation of uh, the recommendations. As you may be aware. Uh, we offered in the committee 84 uh, recommendations underneath four key areas health, um, uh, health including mental and physical health, education with a focus on secondary and third level, and uh, employment and accommodation. So we have uh, 84 recommendations that uh, traveller organisations, both local and uh, national organisations, came up with, along with uh, the, the, the committee. Really, um, Michael, it wasn't about reinventing the wheel. The answers were already there, if you want, along with some new answers, you know, like, uh, and 
basically what we're looking for is implementation. Now today in in the discussion I'll be covering accommodation that we should have a standalone traveller authority for uh, to, uh, to be um, over traveller accommodation and then also a standalone uh, national traveller mental health uh, strategy um, uh, standalone also implementation for the traveller community so the travellers will have equal access to mental health services and have the support that we need for mental health services. Right, uh, and the four areas uh, that you mentioned, they really are uh, what makes life in this country different for a traveller than somebody who's a member of the settled community. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the four areas, again, it's been numbers of work this done years. You know, we, we've had so much uh, statistics, so much reports uh, year after year after year, along with very little action. And one point I've been making over the last uh, few days is that you know, we have three ministers, uh, three ministers with the brief of uh, looking after traveller health and that's uh, underneath uh, the health remit. Mm. And unfortunately, we still don't have any implementation around uh, traveller mental health as as uh, in the current government, the programme for government. So again, the traveller community are being failed like two, uh, two and a half years ago. They had it in the programme of government. Unfortunately, the political will is not there. And, you know, I sent in requests to a certain minister and she still hasn't even replied back to my email. And I sent in that email, a second one, about four uh, four weeks ago. So there's no political will there to um, to uh, get moving on uh, implementing the actions around mental health. Why is that, do you think? Oh, I I don't know, because I know that um, money is there and the, the money do be allocated, but uh, even at local authority levels, and we think in reports, that report that was launched last, uh, last year, along with uh, Brian Harvey and the HSC, and in that report, it shows that local authorities, when it comes to um, he- he- like local health services, local authorities um, underspend uh, 48% of that uh, budget. Now, we don't know where that money even goes to. It's the same around accommodation when money doesn't get spent. Like between 2008 and 2019, over 72 million euro mm. uh, didn't get spent on a uh, traveller accommodation. And I'm aware that, you know, people from the settled community would say, well, actually, the travel like, it looks really nice on paper. Yeah. But over, over, overall, it's, it's, it's just not happening. And 90% of travellers say that mental health problems are common, uh, with <laughs> suicide being the cause of 11% of traveller deaths. Yeah. Uh, and the mental health problems are, are, are coming about for so many travellers because of the other issues uh, that you've been talking about, the way uh, travellers don't work, uh, they don't get the same education uh, uh, opportunities uh, and so on for that matter. And accommodation, of course, is just uh, an embarrassment or should be an embarrassment. Your report is calling for an audit of traveller uh, accommodation. I don't think that's uh, a report, if that audit was completed, that the Irish government could stand over in terms of human rights groups uh, across the world. No, but see, even at a, a UN level, we, we, are, we are failing the indigenous people of, uh, of uh, Ireland, and yet their um, Ireland is not being held to account. Now, I've done some 
some st- seminars and spoke with some people at a European uh, level, you know, and trying to see how can we put more pressure on our Irish government to be held to account for, uh, for as I say, the yield treatment of, of, of uh, uh, the traveller community. And I've been working with some uh, MPs to try to bring it to uh, a European level. And I know that the national organisations, and you have uh, a great uh, person on the, um, the European Council as well, um, Dr Cindy Jice, that also brings these issues to a European level. You know, like travellers were recognised as an ethnic minority group in Ireland in 2017. Mm. And, you know, a lot of us would believe that pressure came from Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they they have to do it. But again, the Human Rights and, and Equality Commission is doing a lot of work around uh, around uh, the, the inequalities that travellers face on a daily basis. You have Pavi Pointed, the National Traveller Women's Forum, the Irish Traveller Movement. You know, these organisations are, are chipping away and trying to make life better for travellers and so is uh, traveller activists in their own right. But unfortunately, it's it's just... Unfortunately, the political will is not there. Now, yeah. today, I am hoping to, you know, encourage the government that this can be the government for better. This mm. can be the government of better change because we've been faced, like, by successive governments, like, going, going back <laughs> since the beginning, you know? Yeah. And, and, and when we talk about travellers and um, unemployment, like, there's 86% of travellers oh, on the sure. side. Mm. And if you look at the, if you look at the behaviour and attitude uh, uh, surveys uh, and study that was done in, that was launched, sorry, in 2018, uh, uh, 2017, excuse me, mm. you'll see that, um, you'll see that um, over 40% of uh, people wouldn't employ a member of the traveller community. So, like, yeah, yeah, even up until I was 25, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd hide your identity, looking for employment, you hide who you are, and unfortunately, and we see, uh, Michael, you know, there's principals of schools who are members of the traveller community. There's doctors, I know of doctors, mm. who are members of the traveller community. We have uh, guardie who are members of the traveller community. And unfortunately, even working in hospice and hospitals, and unfortunately, people have to hide their identity, you know, and, and, and that's that's a shame. Like, that's absolutely a, a sin. And I, I can understand why, you know, like there on Sunday, myself and two friends went to a, um, went into a place in the city centre here and just genuinely refused you know, and I didn't, I just... Uh, they refused to serve you, is it? Yeah, mm. no, I refused to leave us in, myself and two friends, took mm. uh, his details, can't give the name of the of, of the place due to the fact that I think about taking a case, but um, it, it's just absolutely appalling to see this in 2022 uh, uh, Ireland, you know, and uh, unfortunately we see it in... in I wonder uh, if there's any other member of the Oireachtas uh, who'd be refused admission to... Uh, Hostillery. I, I haven't got a clue, but I spoke yeah, to my sibling so. engage, mm. I spoke to my civil engagement uh, colleagues around it, and if I'm not, I, I, I'll see if because I took a case going back a few years ago, mm. and they're very hard uh, cases to to, to take. Um, you know, they're, they're really difficult. They they can go on for two, three years, yeah. and you know, take and I wouldn't coach. Mm. I wouldn't coach people to take them. However, when you get. Uh, a judge that says to you, "You don't look like a traveller, so go for your cases thrown out." It's it's a bit it, it's it's disheartening, you know. And thinking to put yourself through that again would mm. be 
it would be uh, it's difficult you know so I, I don't think I'd go down that route but I would say that um, my civil engagement uh, colleagues were like would write in a letter to the place and, mm. and, and I'd no problem going public if I decide not to take a case but I've up to six months or a year to decide that mm. uh, Do you think um, that there's any truth uh, uh, in saying that travellers are sometimes suspicious of the settled community? I wouldn't say uh, suspicious. What I would say is, uh, you know, trust. Mm. Uh, and well, I think that's the problem, certainly, from the other side. I think the settled community doesn't trust travellers. Um, uh, and that's maybe why you've had one bad government after another, uh, uh, because people are, are saying we don't trust the travellers. Uh, and, of course... Um, there's bad apples everywhere uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of good travellers, uh, but people have their own experience and and it's a cultural thing. We've all grown up um, being told this, that and the other. Uh, whether you're a traveller being told, don't trust the settled community because they they won't let you in or they'll have you locked up or whether you're a member of the settled community being told, don't trust... I, like, I, I hear lovely stories from, uh, say, the, the 70s, the, the mm. 60s, where, where, where people were always very kind to travellers. And we hear uh, um, Michael D. Heaton speak about it a lot, even in his own family in, yeah. in, in Galway. And even where I live myself, you know, there's stories, there's actually a statue of a, the only statue in the village mm. is of a a, a, a traveller, um, a, a singer, you know. Or Tinkers, and, uh, because it was okay to say Tinkers then, because uh, that related to the work that uh, the traveller community did on tins and and uh, repairing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you want, you know, we could blame a lot on the, 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 the implementation of state policies and uh, reports, like the itinerant uh, report in mm-hmm. 1963. Like, I've often heard stories of my mother and father working, you know, and mm-hmm. when we got older and stuff and it was time for us to go to work, you know, down to giving teachers addresses, without mm. giving the address here in uh, in Ladbury, going into a nursing home in Valley Farm and doing placement there for months, told there was a job going, and as soon as you get your address of Ladbury Park, oh, unfortunately, the job isn't going anymore. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I think it's very difficult for, for many young travellers because the reason why is that, you know, even if it starts from, as many travellers will say, it starts from the cradle to the grave for the, for the community. Because you go into school, you're you're already at a disadvantage because you're a member of the traveller community, you know. And not all teachers and not all people in the department, to be fair, not all t- teachers think that young traveller uh, women are going to go off and get married and traveller men are going to go out and work with their fathers and go off and get married. You know, not all teachers think like that. However, we have got a minority of teachers who still think like that today in in um, in, in society mm. where where we see and I, I see it myself and and other activists have been coming to me around it as well over the last few weeks where we have sixth year students third year students getting colour in uh, uh, for uh, for homework. Yeah, I see Martin Collins and Maria Joyce uh, told the committee that drew up uh, this report that the only way you can develop trust and confidence in any institution uh, is uh, to see more travellers become teachers. Uh, And trust is such an important thing in all of this and easier said than done, isn't it? It it does work uh, both ways. Mm. Uh, 
Michael, you know, and like while there's negative stuff that goes on in the in in the settled community, yes, obviously that goes on in the traveller community as well, you know. But you can't target every member of the traveller community uh, uh, the, the the same because we don't do that in the gen in the in the general population, you know. Like we don't think all of the general population is in gangs and are and are shooting. Even though we see uh, see that in the news reports, you know what I mean. Because you can't, you have to meet people where they're at and meet people as uh, as as individuals. You know, it's it's okay. Uh, I've often seen you know where a member of the settled community is having a bad day, probably in the shop, and you know could lose the head a little but not ask you but like to probably to themselves or moving something and if you see that with a traveller person having a bad day evident having a bad day you know it only seems as usher the traveller like and I even feel it sometimes in the Shannon you know where if I speak up and say excuse me like about some of their social media posts about uh, how, how, how they are uh, mm. not all now not all very very I, I would say at least two, three people tops, you know, because mm. I have to say it's a very friendly environment and the majority of senators is absolutely lovely, to be fair. However, what I will say is that their, their public uh, social media posts, their own, uh, their own hate speech and stuff, but no, if yeah. I was to speak up mm. and challenge that in the chambers, mm. I'm only seeing that, yeah. oh, sure, I didn't that again. But when uh, they're doing yeah. it, they're doing their job. I wouldn't mind that old social media stuff. That's just the know-alls. Uh, yeah, pro- probably, yeah. better, pro- probably better uh, ignoring the know-alls, uh, to be honest with you, Senator Flynn. Yeah, uh, yeah. If, you don't, if you don't mind, I'm going to give the last word uh, to one of our, our callers a listener in Navin uh, who's just WhatsApped us and says, I've always found with uh, the travelling community that if you respect them, they'll respect you. I think that's probably something that applies to everybody in the world. Uh, And our caller also says, you've bad apples in all walks of life, uh, but for the best part, the traveller community is a respectable community. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll leave you there. Comments. Thanks, Michael. We'll hear I'd more. Like list, I'd just like to wish all your traveller uh, listeners a very happy uh, Traveller Pride Day and, you know, to celebrate and embrace uh, uh, traveller culture. So um, thanks so, so much. Okay, well, take pride in Pride Day. Uh, traveller Pride Day today. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Independent Senator Eileen Flynn. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, last May, a group, a firm in London called SEPA uh, was asked to look into Ireland's energy security and supply to identify and examine the key risks to the security of supply uh, to uh, identify what options would be in place to mitigate the risks by 2030 uh, and indeed uh, to come up with ways of ensuring a sustainable supply of up to 2050. Uh, that report has not been published yet. It should have been published in May of uh, this year. And Finnegale MEP Colin Markey is calling for its publication and calling on uh, the Minister, Eamon Ryan, to get real about energy security. Colin Markey is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What are you worried about here? Well, probably worried at two levels, Michael, like worried in the short term in terms of our energy security going into the coming winter, and then worried long term in terms of our potential to, we're talking a lot about upscaling our renewable capacity here in Ireland, and I don't know if we're getting on with it as quick as we need to, because clearly we need to decarbonise at one level and we need energy security at another level, both in the short term and the long term, and renewables are a big part of our energy security, and we really need to get moving in terms of particularly the offshore element of us, 
and see that that we start to build our capacity in that space. I think uh, alongside that, we probably need storage in terms of a just other, be it gas or whatever else, to make sure in the short term mm. we've energy security going into the coming winter. And I think these are key areas. Like if you look across Europe, where it's at the minute, uh, EU has looked for, I think it's 18 countries to have 90% storage capacity full before the winter. Ireland's actually not part of them 18 countries. Ireland has basically no storage capacity. Now, we do have the carb gas field, which is given about 30% of our gas. Mm. But outside of that, we're reliant on the rest of, let's say, gas coming from from a, the continent, which ultimately is is connected to Russia and gas coming from there. So that's one issue. But yeah. I think the bigger issue and the bigger part of this report is more the longer term scenario where we really need to get moving on our renewables because yeah. we have massive is it that you, and you called on Eamon Ryan to get real. Uh, is it just that you're at loggerheads with the minister because... Uh, the minister has been talking about a green transition, but uh, he's very much opposed to what you voted for when we spoke about last week, the idea that nuclear power is green energy. Uh, and the minister is saying that we're very different to the rest of Europe because we have so many uh, natural resources uh, at our fingertips, if you like, uh, because of, of the size of the country, the wind, the exactly ocean and everything that is there. Uh, that's um, exactly what we need to get on with. We need, like, I've been, if you go back, I've been pushing this for, for two years, since basically since I got this job. I see enormous potential in our wind capacity. I think we've the potential for a, approximately 16 times our own use of electricity off the west coast of Ireland. Mm. We could supply all our own electricity needs off the east coast of Ireland. So the reality is we have massive potential, but we're not taking the steps quick enough to realise that. Well, Finnegan wouldn't have taken them quicker than the Green Party, would they? We are very much in favour of developing the wind energy capacities there. I think what you're finding with the, the Green Party is that it's it's more interested in, if you like, putting restrictions on people rather than being proactive and taking the opportunities that, that the renewable sector is offering us. And mm. I think like, we need to get our, our interconnectors in place. We need to get our grid sorted and we need to get our planning structure that allows for the development of all this offshore wind in particular. Okay, well it's the Green Party that have uh, introduced uh, these retrofit grants up to 80% uh, or uh, an incredible €25,000 for some people. Uh, the minister has been... Fa- in fairness, it's the, it's the government that has... Ah, yeah, yeah, well, I would think it was the Green Party. And it's the Green Party who are pushing the green agenda, is it not, uh, about wind power? Well, I think we're, we're all pushing the green agenda. Like, from day one, as I said, from day one, I've been looking... Well, the minister would say you're not. Like, if you look at... If you look at the, all like, Eamon Ryan would say you're not. Well, that's not the case. I think, if you look at... From uh, Finnegill perspective, definitely we want to see the offshore wind develop. We like I've been working personally. Uh, there's a wind farm on the east coast there. They've been trying to develop a wind farm for the last ten years, and I've been supporting mm. any way possible to make that happen as well. So definitely, from my perspective, wind is a key part. It's not the only part. The other side of this argument is we need energy security, and we mm. need it in the long term, but we also need it in the short term as well. And certainly, I wouldn't like to be taught that. I'm not in favour of, of renewable energies. Absolutely, 100%. I think we have the offshore, we have the potential of solar, mm. both a, 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 like if you like, at a, at a local level, but also on a larger scale. And then there's, there's the other renewables as well. But I do think the big opportunity is in the offshore wind. 
and I don't think people, and I that's what that's what Eamon Ryan is pushing. But 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 what? Well, why is he not report, Why is he not coming out with a report that looks at how we can make this happen and looks at how we can ensure energy security? Why is he pushing it down the road rather than actually bringing it in and and actually getting on with it? Well, it's only July, in fairness. Uh, uh, and well, no, it's well, it's in fairness. You said last May. It's last May, twelve months. It's that Richard Burton commissioned this report. You said that Fine Gael weren't serious about this. Richard Burton commissioned this report in two thousand and nineteen. It was in it was 2021 when it was when they when we were contracted to do it. Mm. They were due to have it done last May, and it, my understanding is the report's ready to go, but the minister isn't prepared to release it because he does not like what's in it. So he's had That's, he's had it since May of this year. He's had he's, the report is he's had it since May. It's ready to go. Why we're in a situation where we're in an energy crisis? Mm, but it is only July. But if we wait till October and mm. next winter is coming and we don't have our energy, now is the time to deal with it. There's an urgency well, in the short term in dealing with an energy well, situation. There's an urgency well, the minister, in the long term. The Minister is always talking about alternative, renewable, efficient uh, ways of uh, producing well, power, which been, is good for the, been delivered? for the country. Uh, well, talking about it isn't delivering it. Well, uh, the problem. Talking <laughs> about it isn't delivering it. All right, uh, but the, the, the minister uh, did uh, take issue with your vote on gas uh, and nuclear. And we'll hear a little bit uh, now from Eamon Ryan what he had to say about that. With what our European institutions decide in the finer detail, I don't agree with the Parliament yesterday with the taxonomy vote in terms of describing gas or nuclear as green in any way. But that not going to distract us from what we need to do, which is to tap into the resources we have in abundance, to use them with real skill, which we are good at in balancing variable renewable supply and demand management, to heat our homes, to move our transport system, to power our industry. That's the way forward. We've everything to gain from it. Okay. Uh, I think Eamon Ryan has green con- credentials. Uh, I'm not sure anybody who votes for nuclear power or gas as uh, green energy has green I don't, I don't, con- credentials. I don't, think that's, I, don't, I don't think that's what this is about. I've said always, long before that vote ever came mm. out, I was always in favour of offshore wind. I believe it, it is absolutely our in the future. I don't see any potential for, for nuclear in this country whatsoever. Have you I been getting it in the year since you voted for nuclear power? I didn't get one phone call. Did you not? Not one phone call. Right, okay. Not one. And that's been honest with you, Michael. Not mm. one phone call. Got a few emails that were certain emails before the vote, but I didn't get one phone call since. That's honest with you. Being honest with you. Okay. Uh, but I do think mm. that, that, that is all a distraction. In an Irish context, we need to focus on how, our energy security for this winter, number one, and then in the longer term, we need to secure a, our potential. And I do think that it's easy to talk about it. But if I talk to the industry, and I talk to plenty of people in the industry, because I've done webinars and different things in this space, and I've dealt with the industry up and down, both West Coast and East Coast on this, and they tell me they're very frustrated that it's not moving fast enough, and there's things that could be done that aren't being done. And I believe if this report was put out there, it would have a big part to do with our short-term energy security, but also in terms of putting out building blocks in place to reap that potential that's off the West Coast and on indeed the East Coast in terms of renewable energies. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks as always, uh, Colm. Um, that's uh, Fine Gael MEP, uh, local uh, Fine Gael uh, uh, MEP, Colm Markey there. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
time now, as is usual, around the time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Gardaí are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. We're joined for the report this week by Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station. And good morning to you and thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Sergeant. We're going to begin in Dundalk and a serious assault, it seems, that happened on Barrack Street. Now, this would have been in broad day at a quarter to seven in the evening on the 5th of July. Good morning, Michael, and to all your listeners. Yes, Dundalk Gardaí are investigating an assault causing harm incident there at Barrack Street, Dundalk, on the 5th of July at approximately 6.45pm. Uh, the inter-party was attacked by a number of suspects. He received a numerous, new, sorry, numerous blows to the head from an implement and has received significant injuries. Now, investigating Gardaí have examined the scene uh, they're in the process of gathering CCTV footage and an investigation team has been established. So we're looking for the public assistance and we're seeking any witnesses or local information to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 9288400 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Okay, next to Douth in Slane and a vehicle parked up, window broken and some items stolen. Yes, we have a few tests of vehicles this week, Michael. Um, the first one is in Slane Gardaí investigating a test from a parked vehicle at Doubt in Slane on the 6th of July between 5.15pm and 6pm. Uh, the fly window of the passenger door was broken and a number of items were taken from the vehicle. So again, we're looking for anyone who may have been in the area at the time, noticed any person suspicious, to please contact Navin Gardaí on 046-907-9930. And again, I would just like to take this opportunity to highlight to our listeners not to leave any valuables on site when you've parked up your vehicle. Okay, maybe that uh, applies to people who've parked up their vehicle at home. Uh, The next theft from a vehicle happened at the Five Oaks Housing Estate in Drogheda. Yeah, that's correct. Drogheda Gardaí are investigating an incident of theft from a parked vehicle at a private residence at the Five Oaks Housing Estate in Drogheda on the 7th of July, uh, which occurred about 20 minutes after midnight. Um, the inter-party was actually at his residence when he observed the car lights outside his address, followed by a loud bang. The inter-party observed two suspects removing a number of items from his vehicle into another parked vehicle. Uh, the suspects left the scene and the inter-party observed that his rear door of his vehicle had been barrel popped. So presently we have no description of the suspects or vehicles they were travelling in. And we're looking for any help or any information to contact my colleagues at Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. Next uh, to Garlow Cross, uh, a burglary that happened last Thursday. Yes, Navan Garda are investigating a burglary which occurred at 2.20am on Thursday the 7th of July at a licensed premises at Garlow Cross in Navan. Uh, three suspects forced their way uh, to the front door of the premises and made off a small amount of property. Now, we've downloaded CCTV, which depicts the suspects get into a 08MH registered vehicle. Uh, it was a red registered vehicle and leave the scene. So, again, we're looking for any any help in this, uh, or any information to contact Navangardi on 046 907 Okay, the next incident is uh, defined by Gardaí officially as criminal damage and assault. I'm not sure if our, our listeners uh, would call it, it road rage, uh, but this was an incident uh, that happened at Grange Rath in Drogheda on Friday gone by. Yes, correct. Late Town Gardaí are investigating incidents what we would describe as criminal damage and assault at approximately 11.35am on the 8th of July at Grange Gate, Drogheda. The injured party was in his vehicle uh, when the suspect on an electric bicycle allegedly collided with the vehicle. 
uh, an altercation occurred between both parties where it's alleged that the cyclist damaged the vehicle and assaulted the driver. Uh, the suspect on the bicycle is described as having black hair. He was medium to stock build, wearing a black tracksuit. Uh, we have a description of an electric bicycle. It just had big tyres on it, very noticeable big tyres. So we're just looking for anyone that may be in the area or have noticed anything to contact my colleagues at Ashbourne Guard Station on 018010600. OK, there's been a, a lot of talk about Our Lady's Hospital in Navan in recent weeks and uh, a number of people, it seems, uh, parked up in the hospital grounds uh, and only uh, to have items stolen from their vehicles. Yes, Navangardi investigated numerous tests from vehicles from the car park in Our Lady's Hospital Navan and, an, and at an adjoining housing estate in Motland. Uh, all three instances of theft occurred between midnight and 2am on the 8th of July. Uh, two vehicles were forced to be entered and one vehicle was actually left unlocked. Now, my colleagues believe at this stage that the same suspect is involved in all three incidents and they're currently downloading uh, all relevant CCTV footage. We have a still of the suspect, but at presently we can only describe him as a young male. So again, we're looking for any local information or anyone who may have been in the area at the time to contact uh, Navangarda Station on 046-907-9930. OK, next to some important archaeological work uh, that's taking place in Trim and a, a disturbance there. You're investigating some uh, damage uh, as well as trespass. Yes, Trimgardi are investigating an incident of trespass and criminal damage to property of Blackfire where sorry, Blackfriary, where a current and significant archaeological dig has taken place. Um, this occurred sometime between six PM on the tenth of July to nine AM on the eleventh of July. Uh, the enclosed site was actually entered and damage was done to the front door of a porta cabin. So we're looking for anybody who has any information or not was that suspicious to contact my colleagues here at Trimgar Station on oh four six Nine four eight one five four zero, or call in and uh, see you. I suppose is a, a, another way of uh, communicating with uh, Angarda Shiakana. Indeed, uh, you've uh, an open day uh, in Trim Station that you want to mention to our listeners. Yes, I just want to remind all our listeners that Trim Garda Station is having our, their community open day on the sixteenth of July, which is this Saturday, from twelve p.m. to three p.m. Uh, there will be a number of national and local units on display, and this is also to include a tour of the Garda Station. And we believe in providing free ice cream cones uh, to all attending children. And just to note to listeners now, we have organised um, free car parking at the rear car park of James Griffin's public house, High Street Trim. And it's from 11.30am to 3.30pm for the free car parking for all patients that are coming. OK, I see somebody wondering if uh, there'll be free ice cream cones for children in their 30s. Uh, but maybe sure we, we, I'm sure we can organise that too as well. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's uh, Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you, just some more uh, of your thoughts uh, and uh, the comments coming to us. Paddy saying the Taoiseach was away last week and 29 of his own TDs and senators held a meeting without him or any members of the government. That, in Paddy's opinion, is a massive vote of no confidence by his party. 29 TDs and senators with a knife stuck 
in the Taoiseach's back. They are obviously not happy, but they're still probably going to vote uh, yes to the confidence motion uh, that the government uh, will uh, put forward this evening. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Paddy. A Drogheda listener says, uh, can you ask it's independent Senator Eileen Flynn why it is uh, that members of uh, the traveller community don't uh, highlight their ethnic backgrounds on the census? Uh, how can you expect to be counted and services provided for you if you don't acknowledge your ethnicity on the census form. I worked for the census in Drogheda and many of the people I know from the traveller community didn't uh, declare that on the forum. I'm not, I'm not aware of that, uh, but we take you at your word. Uh, it's a, an interesting point and maybe something for people to think about uh, because, as you say, it results in services uh, and so on for people and planning in general. Thank you indeed uh, for that. That has to be the final word on the programme today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.